We're going to read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. And I know that we talked some about 3 and 4 last week, but we're going to talk about verses 3 through 6 today. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting at verse 3, this, that is praying for unbelievers and those in authority, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all, notice the word all there, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for, and again the word all, for all the testimony given at the proper time. Let's pray. Father, you've given us these scriptures. Speak through them to us today, I ask in your name. Amen. Verses 3 and 4 present us with three important truths, and that's why I wanted to go back and pick up on those three truths. The first truth is, God is our Savior. I understand that we regularly speak of Jesus as our Savior, and he is. But it is God who created us. It is God who chose us, who chose to save us from the eternal consequences of our sin. It is God who devised the plan of how to save us. It is God who brought all the necessary pieces together at the right time, which we will look at a little bit later, who brought all the necessary pieces together to bring Christ into our world as a child. It is God who spoke to and led, provided for, and protected Jesus during his approximately 33 years on earth. It is God who brought about Christ's crucifixion. It wasn't the Jews or Herod, yes. They were the human vessels, but it was God who brought that about. It is God who raised Jesus from the dead. It is God who brought Jesus back to heaven and seated him at his right hand. And it is God who is our Savior, who allows Jesus to act as a mediator between God and us. God is our Savior. Yes, Jesus is. But Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, God in human flesh. The second important truth in these verses is that God... Our Savior desires all men to be saved. Or as 2 Peter 3.9 says, God doesn't want any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. In other words, God doesn't want to lose out on an eternal relationship, and these are my words, of mutual love and trust. God doesn't want to lose out on an eternal relationship with any person who has been or will be born into this world. He wants everyone to be saved, everyone to come to repentance, no one to perish. That is 
a great truth. It's true, Jesus himself acknowledged, that broad is the road that leads to death and many travel it. But that is not God's desire. That is our choice. God's desire is that we would all come to repentance. Some of us have more children than others. But imagine having some number of children and only wanting a meaningful relationship with just a couple of them. Imagine a mother being like that. I suppose we could imagine a father being that way, but not a mother. A mother loves every one of those children. That's God. The third great truth is that God our Savior desires all men to come to the knowledge of of the truth. It's possible that you may be thinking the knowledge of the truth refers to what we must do to receive the gift of eternal life. However, if you look carefully at verse 4, you'll notice that God desires two things according to that verse. First, he desires that we would be saved, which includes receiving the gift of eternal life. And by the way, I talk about salvation as saving us from the penalty of sin, yes, but also the power and practice of sin. He is saving us not just to avoid the eternal fires of hell and spend heaven with him forever. He is saving us to get free of all the evil and the old nature and the influences of the world that take us away from God, that cause us to lose relationship with God that make us an enemy of God he is saving us from all of that as well so the first thing is is that we are saved and the second is that we would come to the knowledge of the truth those are the two points that are made in that verse so what does it mean to come to the knowledge of the truth there is no specific definition of what that phrase means in the scriptures. Nothing in the Bible tells us exactly, like a Webster's Dictionary, what that phrase means. But I think that we can deduce what it means by examining the other four scriptures where this phrase is found. So this phrase is found in five places in the New Testament. So we're we're already looking at one of them. So we're going to look at the other four to see if we can figure out what the phrase means coming to the knowledge of the truth means. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 26 says, in essence, that repenting of having opposed and resisted the gospel message allows us or enables us to come to the knowledge of the truth. And if you read that whole portion, 24 through 26, you realize that that in turn enables us to come to our senses, to think right, that is, in relation to God's word, which in turn enables us to escape the lies that the devil uses to hold us captive. So that's what that portion means when it says coming to the knowledge of the truth. That knowledge enables us to see and understand what is true, to value what God values, to think rationally and realistically according to God's word. 
so that we can resist the devil, turn away from temptation, and live according to the word of God. The second scripture that we're going to look at is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2-7. through seven. And the essence of this portion says that the day is coming when many people, many people, notice the word many there, and we're probably approaching that in our own nation. But many people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, even though they live as if it has no power to change them. These kinds of people are referred to as always learning, yet never coming to the knowledge of the truth. And why are they unable to come to the knowledge of the truth? Well, if you look at that portion of Scripture, it's because their beliefs, their values, their fears, and their desires promote a way of thinking and a lifestyle that blinds them to the truth or makes the truth seem irrational and too restrictive so that they don't want the truth or don't take the truth seriously. Or their lifestyle simply distracts them from thinking about the truth. Once again, coming to the knowledge of the truth is what changes us and would change them if they were willing to come to the knowledge of the truth. Speaking of uh, seeing the truth as uh, irrational or unrealistic. I grew up in the church. I was taught the truth. I memorized scripture. I went to Bible college. And in those years I lived as if the truth was unrealistic, was unsatisfying. You can't have fun in life and be a Christian. That's an unhappy, unpleasant unfulfilled, unsatisfying life. And that's the kind of irrational, unrealistic thinking that prevents us from coming to the truth and seeing it for what it is. The third place where this uh, statement is found is Titus chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. And that portion of scripture confirms that faith is for salvation and the knowledge of the truth is for godly living. It actually breaks down into two specific parts. And when they're tied together, when salvation and coming to the knowledge of the truth is tried together, it gives us the hope or confidence of eternal life. Yes, both things are necessary to give us that hope or confidence. So once again, we see that the knowledge of the truth is intended to produce a godly life. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 31, infers that the knowledge of the truth ought to convince us to stop sinning, or at least to make an honest effort not to sin. I don't know how familiar you are with that portion. I'm not reading it. I could quote it to you. I've memorized it and still meditate on it. 
to knowingly and willingly continue sinning, as if God is going to overlook it, is to trample underfoot the Son of God and to regard as unclean the blood of the covenant by which we are sanctified and to insult the Spirit of grace and to unrepentantly continue to do this is to forsake or reject Christ's sacrifice for sins. In this case, according to that portion of Scripture, the knowledge of the truth shows us how foolish it is to knowingly and willfully continue sinning, not committing a sin here or a sin there. We're talking about the practice of sin, something in our lives that we know is wrong, but we continue to do it anyway, as if God is going to overlook it, or as if if we live in denial of it, everything is going to work out okay, or as if our salvation is secure and it doesn't matter, or as if we're righteous in all these other areas, so this one or two other areas of unrighteousness is going to slip by. Practicing sin. Willfully, knowingly practicing sin. And that's what this scripture is addressing here in Hebrews chapter 10. And though this portion of scripture takes a different perspective than the other three, the essence or outcome of the message is the same. The knowledge of the truth is intended to change us so that we live a godly life. All right. To come to the knowledge of the truth, at least according to those four portions of scriptures, which are the only other four where the phrase is found, is to see the evils of sin and to see why, how, and to what extent we can and ought to live a godly life. That's what it means to come to the knowledge of the truth. Here in verses 5 and 6, Paul tells us that there is only one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Because we are ending today's teaching with communion, I wanted to begin with the end of verse 6 and come back and deal with the first part, with verse 5 and the first part of verse 6, because that will lead us into communion. So, these, at the end of verse 6 we read, the testimony given at the proper time. I don't know about you, but those words have intrigued me for uh, many years. I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about it, but they still intrigue me. The proper time. These, what these words remind us of is that Jesus' death and resurrection took place at a God-specified time, or as verse 6 says, at the proper time. In Romans chapter 5, verse 6, Paul says, for while we were still helpless, at the right time. So here in writing to Timothy says it's the proper time. In Romans he says it was at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul uses a slightly different phrase to say the same thing. He says, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. The point is, is that there's something about the timing of Jesus coming to earth 
his living, his dying, and his resurrection, there is something about that that made it the proper time, the right time, or in the fullness of time. But what is it? One of the things that some people have uh, suggested is that if he had come during our era, in the last, say, ten years, his message could have been sent around the world via YouTube or uh, Twitter or other kind of things. Billions of people could have his messages in their hands, on their phones, on their computers, and it would be a universal exposure. Why not now? wasn't the right time. One of the thoughts that I have about that is if you look at how Jesus did ministry, it wasn't via radio, television, the internet. It was personal. He talked to people just like we're talking. It was direct. I don't know if you've thought about this, but as I think about that, there is something about that directness of ministry that is better than the indirect exposure via media. Now, I'm not saying that that made it the right time. I'm just saying as I have thought about some of these things, that's one of my own thoughts. Some people think that the timing of Christ's presence in the earth had to do with the advanced civilization of certain people uh, groups, certain people groups that surrounded Israel. Some think that it was the right time because of the growth of knowledge. Knowledge had really grown in that era. And also there was an acceptance and spread of the whole idea of philosophy and using reason and logic as a way of thinking. Storytelling was a common method of getting your message across or trying to figure out life the Greeks had brought reason and logic into our world. It happened to be at that time that Christ came. Some people think that's the reason it was the right time. Others think it was Rome's rule over such a large part of the world and their road system. Their road system made it, well, reasonably safe and a lot easier to spread the gospel. Still others think it was the right time because the Greek language had spread far enough to provide a common language for preaching, teaching, writing, and reading God's word. It was like the business language, so to speak, although it was the educated language. And then there are a few who think God's patience with Israel had come to an end. And God determined it was time to use a means other than the Jews and the nation of Israel to build his kingdom. Well, in spite of all these thoughtful speculations, and that's what they are, that's what mine is, just speculation, the reality is we don't know what made the timing of Christ's birth, death, and resurrection the proper time. We only know that that's what the scripture tells us it was. It was the proper time, the right time. It was the fullness of time. And though curiosity might prompt us to seek an answer, I want to reinforce the reality that we don't need to know. It doesn't change anything in our lives. 
doesn't change how I treat my wife, doesn't change how I raise my children, it doesn't change how I do my job, it doesn't change how I treat the neighbors, it doesn't change any of that. It's just interesting information. We don't really need to know. What we do need to know is the knowledge of the truth. As Paul talked leading into this section. That is what we do need to know. We need to know how to trust God. We need to know how to, how to put ourselves in his hands. How to wait for him to act. We need to know how to live according to his word. Those are the things that really matter. Returning to verse 5 and the first part of verse 6 we read, There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. By the way, we could spend some time talking about the theology of Calvinism or the Reformed uh, theology that is very much akin to to Calvinism. It's mostly made up of Calvinism. But uh, there are legitimate verses that support the sovereignty of God and the election and choice of people for salvation even though this says that God wants none to perish, but all to come to repentance. He gave himself the ransom for all. God wants all to be saved. So I'm encouraging you not to get too tied into that uh, theological debate. Keep in mind that the word of God should be held as a complete whole, even when we can't fully integrate or understand some of the things that seemingly, in our human perspective, contradict each other. Let us trust that God knows what he's saying and knows what he's doing and uh, let him work that out. Anyway, there is one God. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. We are Christians. And as Christians, we believe there is only one God. That's easy for us because that's What we've been raised to believe, that's what we've been brought into the faith to believe. There is only one God, and that all other gods are merely man-made idols, or man's imagination in trying to create a God or find a God substitute that serves them as they think a God should. The Bible first proclaims the reality of one God in the Old Testament, and an example of that comes from uh, Deuteronomy. In presenting reasons to the Israelites why they should obey God, Moses asked these questions. So I thought these are pretty good questions. So listen as I ask them to you. Has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire as you have heard it and survived? Has anybody? Where did they hear that? That was on the mountain. Remember the the fire and the thunder and the lightning? The mountain shaking and the voice of God? They heard it and lived. Has anybody had that experience? No. Only the Israelites. Or has a God tried to go and take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials, by signs and wonders and by war and by a mighty hand and by the outstretched arm and by great terrors? as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? You saw this happening. Any other God do that? 
To you these things were shown, that you might know that the Lord, He is God, and there is no other besides Him, Moses said. One God. Deuteronomy 4, 33 and 35. And in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, Moses said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Doesn't mean he can't be a trinity, by the way. It means he's the only God. He's one. There isn't any other God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. I don't know if you've thought about why those two thoughts have been put together. The Lord God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God. Why? Well, God is one, and he does not ask us to love multiple gods, just to love the one true God. We are to give all our love to the God. What are other gods that tempt us to love them? The Bible speaks of money, certainly uh, things like sex, power, fame. These are other gods that enter into our life that ask us to love them. Our own way, self-rule. There's more than one God out there competing for our allegiance, but there is only one true God, and we are to love him. Jesus confirmed the truth that Moses spoke in Deuteronomy 6. And this is recorded in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 30, where a scribe came and heard Jesus and some Sadducees debating the resurrection. Why were they debating the resurrection? Well, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They were Jews, and and they held to the Old Testament, uh, just as any good Jew would, but they did not believe in the resurrection. And recognizing that Jesus had answered them well, so the scribe, was he came up to this group, they're having this discussion, and he notices that Jesus gave them some really good answers, so he was going to ask his question. What commandment is the foremost of all, the scribe says. And Jesus answered, the foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The Lord our God is one. One God. And we are to love that one God. Paul explains the one God truth in contrast to idols and so-called gods in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 to 6. And I'm going to read this to you. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world. There is no alternate God to Jehovah. And there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, And we exist for him and one Lord Jesus Christ by whom are all things and we exist through him. For God through Jesus Christ. 
So once again, we are Christians. We believe there is only one God. I'm not trying to convince you of that, just simply giving you some scriptures that reinforce that. As Christians, we believe there is only one mediator between God and men, and that's the man, Christ Jesus. A mediator is someone who mediates by getting between two parties who are in conflict or at variance with one another. A mediator is someone who mediates by getting in between. So think of two people at odds, and you stand as the mediator between them. By getting between two parties who are in conflict or at variance, and upon getting between them, you help them resolve their conflict and reconcile their relationship. However, Jesus is a unique mediator. By the way, I've done a number of mediations through CCS. And uh, we didn't stand between the people. We usually put them in a circle. And we would all sit in one or another chairs in those circles. It's a little safer than standing between them, I suppose. But the mediator's role is to help the parties that are in conflict and who are at odds with each other to work out that conflict and to reconcile the relationship. The difference between a normal mediator and Jesus Christ is that upon getting between God and us, and that's where the conflict was, it was between God and us, upon getting between us, he didn't help God and us work out the differences, he didn't help us resolve our conflict, he became the solution himself. He became the solution to the conflict. And in becoming the solution, yes, He paid the penalty we owe for the sins we have committed. But he did more than that. By becoming the solution, Jesus becomes our peace. And in becoming our peace, he makes peace between God and us by resolving the conflict between us. It is in his death and resurrection that the conflict is solved. Yes, we have to repent. We have to come to faith. There is no question about that. But the point is, there is only one mediator, only one savior, only one redeemer, only one person who is the propitiation for our sins. And that is Jesus Christ. He paid the penalty that we owe for the sins we have committed. And he became our peace, making peace between God and us so that we could be reconciled to God. There is no basis for realistic reconciliation apart from having reached peace between the conflicting parties. That is the basis for realistic reconciliation. You can smile and nod, you can shake hands, but when you leave the room, you'll end up going your own way if there isn't real peace. That is required for reconciliation. Christ not only died to pay the penalty for our sin, but he became the peace, the reason for peace, the basis of our peace with God 
And that is what opens the door to our reconciliation with God. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. That's what the mediator has done for us. We're going to conclude our teaching time with communion. And today I'm asking you to ponder the two great truths that we've just talked about as we eat the bread and drink the cup. And uh, Gary, would you pass this out as I just present these two things? So the first truth, again, that I want you to ponder today is the one and only God of the universe is not only the God who created us, he is the God who saves us. First of all, from the eternal consequences of our own sinful, foolish, and self-destructive choices and behavior. He saves us from that. Secondly, he saves us from the power and practice of sin. And third, he saves us from our selfish and irrational ways of thinking, our false beliefs, our foolish fears, our worldly and vain values. But salvation is not just saving us from something. He saves us to something. He saves us, yes, from what kills, but he saves us to what gives us true life. And that life is abundant. That's the first truth I'm asking you to ponder as we share in communion today. The second great truth is that Jesus Christ is the one and only mediator who is worthy able and willing to stand between God and us and make this and become the solution to the conflict that separates us from God. He is the one and only able, willing mediator. And in becoming the solution, yes, he paid the penalty we owe for the sins we have committed, but he also became our peace with God. Have we made peace with God? No, he became our peace with God. He stepped in between us and became what we needed. And in making peace with God on our behalf for us, he's the one that made it possible for us to be reconciled to God, beginning in this life and throughout eternity. 